Well, we do find ourselves in Romans chapter 11 again, Romans chapter 11, and we are in verse 5, Romans 11, verse 5. You can read along with me, Romans 11, 5 through 10. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Sends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, shortly after midnight on November 27th, 1983, Avianca Flight 11 crashed into rolling hills just south of Madrid's airport. The first impact took out an engine. The second took off a wing, and the third sent the fuselage and the rest of the plane cartwheeling across the terrain, ripping apart what remained. And miraculously, 11 of the 192 men, women, and children on board survived, and most of those were ejected from the plane as it flipped There was no catastrophic system failures, and so... In times like that, we often wonder, and many ask the question, how could something like this happen? The plane's infamous black box was recovered the day of the crash, and so we have a pretty good idea of the final moments. The weather near Madrid was quite foggy, and the air traffic controllers gave permission for the 747 to land. And at that point, the pilots misread some instruments and took the plane ever so slightly off course. And not being able to see in the fog, they were supposed to rely on their instruments. And as the fast approaching, the looming hills were coming, they couldn't see it. And so the ground proximity warning system sounded, even instructing the pilot in a shrill, mechanized voice, pull up, pull up, pull up. And inexplicably, the pilot is heard saying, bueno, bueno, or okay, okay, good, I got it. As he switches off the alarm and takes full control of the plane. He took no evasive action and less than a minute later hit the first hill. At that point, he tried to ascend rapidly, but it was too late. One of the airline's most seasoned and decorated pilots, in a final moment of pride, decided to ignore his flight instruments and even the shrill voice to pull up, designed to save life, to help the blind see what is shrouded in fog. Pride often fogs our eyes, deafens our ears, hardens our hearts. We get used to ignoring God's warning systems and let biblical truth go in one ear and out the other. And so we see repeatedly God's solution is to pray for something we call illumination to pray that the Lord would bring light into our darkness. And so our text this morning motivates us to be humble, motivates us to take a humble posture before God's word and to ask God for help, for eyes to see and ears to hear. Today, Paul describes calloused hearts, specifically the calloused hearts of most Jews who continue to reject Jesus as their Messiah. And so what was it that caused the Jews to ignore the calls to pull up, to to change course before they shipwrecked their lives? And what you see perhaps will shock you. What is it that causes them to ignore these things? Well, it is God and his hardening. Paul reminds us again, God is sovereign over epics, nations, and every single human heart. He simultaneously shows undeserving grace to one and then doles the senses of the next. 
He simultaneously shows us that we need Jesus and then hardens another. And so we are left with a sense of complete dependence on him. Dependence on God to open our eyes and to illumine his word. We ought to stand humbled, recognizing that we are born dead. We are born blind, a dead tree that produces dead fruit. And if it weren't for the radical grace of God to open blind eyes, we would remain on that broad path that leads to destruction. And so we grow ever more dependent on God for his saving and his sustaining work, asking for the bright light of gospel grace to shine in our lives. So this morning, we're going to see four reasons why you should pray for God's illumination. Four reasons why you should pray for God's illumination. Why illumination isn't just vital for becoming a Christian, but it is an important part of the Christian life or the ongoing Christian life. Now, some of you might be asking, as we've said a couple of times here, what is illumination? What exactly is illumination? Quite literally, it means to turn on the lights. It's to replace darkness with light. Metaphorically, it's, it's to help us to understand something we were ignorant of before. And so spiritually, illumination has really two components for us. First, it's to turn a dark, dead, sinful heart, the heart that we are born with, into a living heart that is softened to the gospel. This is also known as conversion, and and Titus 3.5 speaks of this type of illumination. God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Spirit, And that speaks of the Holy Spirit's work of giving us a new heart and illumining our minds to the truth of the gospel. Well, the second component of illumination is an ongoing work of God, the Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to understand his word, to be able to grasp biblical content and have it to uh, arrest your soul so that you might aim your whole life to glorify and enjoy God. Psalm 119.18 speaks of this second idea of illumination. The psalmist writes, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. You see, that ongoing work of illumination is so very important to the Christian life. So as Paul describes the calloused hearts of Jews who reject Christ, really we're going to see the typical calluses that come on anybody who would reject Christ. And, and we're confronted with the thought, if, if not for the grace of God and his illumination, I'd be just as hard-hearted, just as dull to the gospel truth. And although we don't have a plane full of passengers along for our, the ride and our private devotions, how you approach the word of God, how you respond to God's word has eternal ramifications for your soul and the many people that God has placed in your life. And as tragic as a plane crash always is, it is eternally tragic to assume you're always right in the fogs of life and to ignore what God wants you to do and ask him for help. As we hear Paul's voice explaining why so many of his fellow Jews ultimately reject Christ, he turns again to God's sovereignty over it all that pushes us to depend on him all the more. And so our first reason we should pray for God's illumination, number one, God elects to show grace. Number one, God elects to show grace. We see that in verses five through seven. Well, the day that we finished our backpacking journey this last summer, we found the only restaurant that was still open to enjoy our first non-freeze-dried food in three days. And I can tell you, Taco Bell never tasted so good. It's like Martin Luther says, hunger is the best cook. The Old Testament was specifically designed by God to help the Israelites hunger for Christ, 
to help them realize that they couldn't achieve God's standard of perfection and get to heaven based on keeping his law or on good works. It was designed to help that lead them to conclude that they needed a perfect once-for-all sacrifice for sins, that they needed a Messiah to cover their shortcomings in order to reconcile them with God. Thus, the Jews should have concluded, as they hungered for a right standing before God, that the law couldn't get them there, that they needed Jesus. And so Martin Luther writes, hunger is the best cook. As the dry earth thirsts for rain, so the law makes the troubled heart thirst for Christ. To such hearts, Christ tastes sweetest. To them, he is joy, comfort, and life. Only then are Christ and his work understood correctly. See, to push the illustration, without Christ, we are emaciated, and it's only God's word that nourishes our souls. We are totally depraved by nature, emaciated in righteousness, dead in sin, and so the first step towards understanding the gospel is simply that we desperately need to be saved. We desperately need a Savior. A hunger for our Savior is what most Jews missed. And it's what Paul says is the problem in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 with the majority of Jews. And so we see, look at verse 7. Paul asks, what then? And then he makes the statement, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. You ask the question, what then? And really that comes in the context here. And so you might bring it back to the question he asked at chapter 11, verse 1. Has God rejected his people? Uh, you know, it seems that that has been the case. It seems that those have, uh, many Jews have hardened their hearts. And he says, well, what then? He answers it. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Paul has repeatedly taught that most of the Jews rejected Christ and looked to the law as a way to earn a right standing before God. And so Paul asks, what then? And this picks up on what Paul wrote in chapter 9. Go ahead and go to chapter 9, verse 31. What was Israel seeking? What did they fail to attain to what they were seeking? Verse 31 tells us, Israel pursued the law thinking that it would lead them to righteousness. They did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were simply based on works. They misused the law. The law was supposed to help them hunger for Christ, to recognize their sinful state before a holy God, and thus their need for a Savior. Instead, they thought that they could be right with God through good works, through keeping the law. And so Paul writes of his kinsmen in chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. See, Christ alone is the righteousness of God. Christ alone gives them right standing before God. But they sought it on their own, right? You see that in verse 3. They sought righteousness on their own, and they did not submit to how God wanted to get them righteous. And so therefore, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law, the culmination of the law for righteousness, to give us righteousness to everyone who believes. You see, the law was supposed to help them hunger for Jesus, to recognize their inability to get to heaven without him. And instead, in pride, they turned the law on its head. And so go back to chapter 11. Uh, Paul asks the question, uh, the end of verse 10 actually, makes the kind of observation, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So, so has God rejected his people? Verse 1, chapter 11, verse 7, what then? He answers it very succinctly. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. 
Some of you might ask the question, what does it look like to hunger for Christ? What does it look like to realize that you need Jesus? And sometimes we need a picture. And thankfully, Jesus paints a picture of what it looks like to hunger and thirst for the Messiah. Back in Luke 18, you can turn there or you can just listen as I read. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, he's going to tell a parable. A parable is a picture, a story of the tax collector and a Pharisee, both of whom will pray to God. And in the twist of sorts, he points out that the Pharisee is not right with God and the tax collector is. So this is a picture of what it means to long for the Messiah, to to realize you need a Savior. Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Stop right there. I mean, that's so important, right? He's telling this parable to a crowd of Jews who trusted in who? themselves, themselves to try and do good enough to earn God's favor. And so he's telling this parable to those who trust in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, right? And so two men, he says, beginning in verse 10, went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And you can imagine it would go on and on and on, right? I mean, this is just over the top. He's painting a picture of the thing that some of you do, right? I mean, how many of you have ever gotten in an argument with somebody and then prayed to God and been like, why don't they get it? Why don't they see how beautiful and wonderful I am? Why, how, how, do they, how, how can they think that I'm wrong here, God? Help them figure this out, right? You're doing the same thing, right? But this is the Pharisee here, and he's praying to God, extolling his virtues, But the tax collector, verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, the typical way that they expressed humility and mourning in those days. Beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says this, I tell you, this man the the tax collector, went down to his house justified, declared right before God rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What a powerful contrast between self-righteous pride and genuine humility. You see, the whole law was designed to arrest the hearts of men and make them like this tax collector. And so we pray for illumination. We pray that God would help us understand who he is, that God would help us appreciate his word so that we might grow and be humble. We pray, as the psalmist says in Psalm 86, 11, teach me your ways, O Yahweh, that I may walk in your truth. We pray as we read the Bible that God would show us grace. They would help us to see the sinfulness of our heart and turn to trust Christ alone. Not just at one point in our lives, but but daily. As a way of life. Do you believe that it is a gracious thing to be aware of your sin and your need for a Savior? And so Paul rejoices in God's saving grace to preserve a remnant of Jews who know that they aren't good enough, who know that they need Jesus to be reconciled with God, and who recognize they're spiritually starved trying to keep the law. So go back to Romans chapter 11, and we see Paul then look at what the remnant, uh, describing the remnant. Romans 11 verse 5. So he says, so too at the present time, there is a remnant. There are Jews who are humbled like the tax collector, like Paul himself, who have turned to Christ. 
But why have these Jews come to Christ and not others? Well, it's the same reason anyone else comes to Christ. They have been chosen by God. Look at verse 5, right? So too at the present time there is a remnant of those who have humbled themselves and believed in Jesus Christ who are what? Chosen by grace. Chosen by grace. You could say they are elected by God's grace. And so, so Paul brings up the same idea in verse 7, doesn't he? He says, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What's the contrast? Well, the elect obtained it. Right? So the elect obtained it. The chosen ones are those who obtained God's grace. The remnant, the chosen ones of Israel are elect. That's that word chosen by God. So our salvation always first is a result of God choosing to work. Choosing to open our blind eyes to help us feel the hunger pains of our own souls. To note our spiritual starvation and to incline our hearts to Christ. The reality of God's election is why we pray for illumination. It's why we pray for God to work in us and in those that we love. His electing work is an amazing grace. And that word grace means it's a profound gift. That's what he says in verse 5, right? So too, at the present time, there's a remnant who are chosen by grace. And to clarify that, that grace means not by works, Paul continues in verse 6. But if it is by grace, if we're chosen by grace, if we're elected by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So even if it were just a little bit of works that got us right with God, grace would no longer be grace. Even if we try to say that I have to make the first step that gets us right with God, and then he reaches out and takes me the rest of the way, grace would no longer be grace. And so Martin Luther says, when we try to give ourselves some tiny little credit, we act like the grace of God is not free, but based somehow on our works. And so Paul is crystal clear. God chose you to show grace, and grace is God's gift in his timing and in his way. And so if we think in our own sovereign free will, chose God, then grace is no longer grace. So let grace be grace and assign sovereign free will only to our maker and ask for his light to shine in our dark hearts. Now, I've quoted Martin Luther quite a bit today because, as you probably know, we're coming up on something on Tuesday. What day is exciting on Tuesday? What day is it? Reformation Day. Yes. Some of you caught, I caught you, right? It's not Halloween. It's Reformation Day. Reformation Day is on October 31st. 506 years ago, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle doors, uh, castle church doors in Wittenberg. And that began, really, the recovery of God's gospel of grace. And as Luther simply exposed God's word and brought it to bear in the life of the church, it did a profound work, and we we're kind of the great-great-great-grandchildren of this Protestant Reformation. And in 1521, when, when Luther was living in exile for fear of his life, he had been condemned by the Pope and his good friend and Pastor Philip Melanchthon needed some advice. He, he wrote to Martin Luther. You see, Philip was unable to make a decision for his church because it seemed to Philip that no matter what way he chose, that, that either choice would be clouded by his own sin. So he's just wrestling through what choice to make. He said, there seems to be sinful reasons why I would choose either. Luther responds ever so boldly. This is what he says. If you are a preacher of grace, O Philip, then preach a true and not a fictitious grace. If grace is true, it must cover a true and not a fictitious sin. God does not save people who are only fictitious sinners. So be a sinner and sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ even more boldly, for he is victorious over sin, death, and the world. 
and later, get used to the fact that Christ is a genuine Savior and that you are a real sinner. Now, Luther is always known for his hyperbole. Of course, he's not promoting sinning boldly all the more and living a life of sin. But his point is well taken. He's helping his friend get unstuck and make a decision and stop acting like you've never sinned before and like God's grace cannot cover your sin. You have to make a decision here, so do it. And if you need to, to repent, repent. Because guess what? You'll need to repent tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day because you are going to continue to struggle with sin. Luther's antidote is simple. Remember, you will sin. But ever sweeter is God's marvelously free Sovereign grace. So, beloved, an expression of our dependence on grace is to simply ask God for help, to illumine our minds as we read His Word. It's to recognize our sin and not fool ourselves into thinking that we're somehow without sin and lean on God's grace that comes in Christ. That's why James tells us to confess sins one to another. He wouldn't say that if he expected all of us to be sinless. That's why in care group we confess sins to one another. We recognize our own struggles with sin are going to be ongoing. And if not, examine your heart. Remember that God wants us to be like the tax collector, beating our breasts, recognizing our need for a savior. We aren't pretend sinners. We don't, who, who don't need God's grace. We are real sinners with a real savior. So Paul tells us a remnant of Jews have seen the light. And since it's God who chooses to show grace whenever he wants, let's stay humbled and ask for help ourselves. Well, Paul continues with three more reasons why we should pray for God's illumination. These last three are all related here. And so we need to pray, secondly, because God dulls spiritual senses. God dulls spiritual senses. See, just as God chooses by his free and sovereign grace to, to love and to cherish and to open up our eyes, so too does God harden whomever he wills. Go back to Romans chapter 9, verse 18. We see this, Romans 9, verse 18. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will, you might say human sovereign free will, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's very clear, right? And going ahead in chapter 11, Paul picks on the same theme again. Verse 7, chapter 11, verse 7, right? He asks the question, you know, what then? He says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. It was trying to get right with God, but it failed. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. That, that word hardened there can literally mean calloused. If you know any serious guitar players, you understand that they develop calluses on their left hand, right? They're, they're strumming with a pick generally over here, and on their left hand, they're moving their hands up and down the strings. And so all of their fingers will develop quite thick and hard calluses. The more they slide their fingers along that coiled string, uh, the thicker the callus becomes. It eventually gets to be so thick and so hard that you can poke a needle in pretty far without them feeling a thing. I don't suggest you do that to your guitar friends, but so I've been told. When you play the guitar, a callus is a good thing, but spiritually calloused brings death. Now, as you look at verse 7, right, and it says very end there, the rest were hardened. You have to ask the question, how is the unbeliever hardened against the gospel? How is the unbeliever hardened in their unbelief? Like, like they have this callous where, where they're just unsensitive and unfeeling towards things of the Lord. 
Perhaps you might think maybe they're hardened by, by very tragic events in their life. Maybe they've been hardened because they've been wronged by somebody. Maybe somebody in the church. Maybe they've been hardened because they've been sinned against by anybody. Perhaps you might think, you know, no, they've been hardened because of their own sinful habits and patterns in life. But Paul shows us something that might be a little bit disturbing for you. It's God who dulls spiritual senses. Just as God sovereignly gives grace, so too does God sovereignly dull hearts. Look at verse 8. As it is written, who? God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. He piles on the descriptions of a calloused heart. First, their spirit is as responsive as a drunk. You try to prick it with the word, but it's no use. It's passed out and dull to anything. So he says, God gave them a spirit of stupor. And then, second, their eyes are blinded. They've gotten so accustomed to the spiritual darkness all around them that they've lived in since birth, and they think that it's somehow normal. They call the darkness light because they're blind. Third, God gives them ears that are deaf. And to the unregenerate, the, the non-believer, the word sounds like the muffled sort of Charlie Brownish sounds that we imagine from childhood. And so God dulls each of those spiritual senses as the unbeliever willingly pursues sin himself. Said that very carefully. It is God indeed who hardens, yes, but men never do what we are not inclined to do. And so it can be said of Pharaoh, both that Pharaoh hardened his own heart and that what? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And at this point, John Calvin writes, God's ways are beyond us so that we must wonder at the incomprehensible counsel of God. How these two things fit together, we will never know perfectly on this side of eternity. But we know assuredly they do. God hardens hearts, and we certainly harden our own hearts. And since God hardens hearts, does that mean that there is no hope for the one who has this seared conscience or this calloused heart? Well, there's actually hope in the final line of verse 8. What does the final line of verse 8 say? Down to this very day. You see, the Jews are under a curse from God to this very day. But that's not the end for God's chosen people. God has a purpose for the unbelief of the Jews to, to bring in the age of the Gentiles to fulfill God's promise to Abraham that he made years and years ago, right? What did God promise to Abraham? That one of his offspring would bring a blessing upon the whole world. And so we see that we are the recipients of Abraham's promise, but in order to accomplish that, what did he have to do? Harden the Jews' heart so that the gospel will go to the rest of the world. So we see this theme kind of talked about in the rest of the chapter, and we'll just get a, a snapshot for what's going to happen next week. But, but look at verse 11 and 12, right? So I ask, did the Jews stumble in order that they might fall and kind of permanently never have any hope of reconciliation with God? Uh, by no means, he says. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? How much better will it be when God restores his people? So certainly salvation has come to many of us Gentiles, but how glorious, too, will it be when God brings a great salvation to his people Israel? Now, to understand how this theme of God hardening people for a time in order to eventually save others later comes out, I want you to turn to one of the passages that was just quoted in verse 8. Go to Isaiah 29. Isaiah 29. 
This is one of the passages that Paul quotes in verse 8. But what's fascinating is that even though Isaiah says there is a time when Israel will be given a spirit of stupor, right? It, it, It will not always be a spirit of stupor. It says there's coming a time when their eyes will see again. So look at Isaiah 29, verse 10. He says, For Yahweh has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. That's the part that was quoted. He goes on to say, verse 11, And the vision of all of this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. And when men give it to one who can read, saying, Read this, he says, I can't, for it's sealed. And verse 12, and when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. It's, it's, it's blinded to them. They don't understand this. But, but this will not last forever. This judgment of a spirit of stupor, of eyes that cannot see, of ears that cannot hear, will not last forever. For God says, verse 14, right at the beginning, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. And this people, of course, is Israel. And then he says, look at the, uh, the, the parallels in verse 18 and 19. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The, the meek shall obtain. And I love how he says the meek, right? I mean, that describes that tax collector who, who beats his breast. What is it that God wants from us? He wants us to be meek and understand we need a savior. So the meek shall obtain fresh joy in Yahweh. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel is code for the Messiah, uh, the coming savior of the world. And Deuteronomy 30 is, is kind of shortly after the other passage that was quoted in verse 8. And listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Don't turn, just listen. He says, And Yahweh your God in that day will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and that you may live. God tells us very clearly, clearly there will be a time when the callous that Israel has over her heart will be removed. They will be accustomed to evil. They will be accustomed to darkness, and not evil and darkness done to them, but evil and darkness within. And there will also come a day when God opens blind eyes and floods their minds with glorious light. So should we not pray for illumination ourselves? Is this not how God works? For God promises to open the blind eyes so that we can become captive to the word of God, right? The meek shall obtain fresh joy in Yahweh. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of the gloom of darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. So shouldn't we ask God for him to work in us in that way? This is, the central, this is the central to the heart cry of every Christian for first our own lives and then for every unbeliever we know that God would soften dull hearts. To be able to say with Martin Luther and boldly so, I am bound by the text of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Psalm 18, 28. For it is you who light my lamp. Yahweh, my God, lightens my darkness. And oh, beloved, some of you may be hardening your hearts as well. Perhaps your senses have been dulled to the word. You feel like reading God's word is like chewing on sawdust. And pursuing what God wants in your life is is bland and boring and uneventful. Can I encourage you? Return to the word today, for it's like a refreshing stream for our souls. Ask God for illumination to make you desire his word like a newborn longs for milk. Ask for a focused heart next time you read and for the Holy Spirit to soften the soil of your soul. And stay in intimate Christian fellowship with one another 
so that you can stir each other up to love and good works, to live as God would have you to live. Well, there's a third reason why you should pray for God's illumination. Number three, God turns comforts into snares. God turns comforts into snares. Perhaps you know the feeling when you get a new easy chair or couch. It becomes instantly the most comfortable seat in your whole house. And at first you want everyone to come and enjoy the couch or the, the easy chair. And you have people over and you're like, hey, sit in this new chair I got. It's awesome. Look at how it reclines. It's zero gravity. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And, and, and you're willing to share it and it's your joy. But, but somewhere along the way, you start to get possessive of the chair. And a child gets in the chair and you do the up now and they say why and you say because i said so or your wife if you if it begins to sit in the chair more and more frequently and then you kind of cozy up to her and say you know if you really wanted a chair i could have bought two chairs listen it's all too easy to let the comforts of life become the purpose of life and so as an act of divine punishment, God lets us slide into what we're already inclined to do, to turn our comforts into snares. Go back to Romans 11, verse 9. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap. You see, the table was the place of fellowship, of feasting, of family blessings. It's perhaps the most important piece of furniture in the home and is a picture of so much of God's continued blessings in our lives. But that place, which is supposed to be a comfort, David says, is turned into a snare. Instead of a place where partnerships are forged it becomes an occasion for evil, strife, hunger, and thirst. Not just a snare, but, but a trap. And he continues, right? Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. And it's significant that Paul quotes Psalm 69 here because Psalm 69 is frequently used in the New Testament to show so many, uh, how so many would come to reject the Messiah. And it's written by David, of course, and it's written about a time in his life, but the New Testament writers apply it to how the Jews of the day would reject their Messiah, just as the people in David's day rejected him. And thus, as David is asking for God to curse his enemies in Psalm 69, verse 9 is now applied to those who've rejected Christ. And it's God's curse on those who reject Christ. So he says, right, very clearly, let their table, let that place of comfort and family, of, of, of feasting, of God's blessing, become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. So what should be the safest place turns into a snare for spiritual ruin. And this has generational consequences, doesn't it? When home life is not designed to exalt Christ above all, then children will grow up exalting whatever idols were pursued with the greatest vigor. How easy is it for our comforts to be turned into snares. Martin Luther and his wife Katie had six children whom Luther affectionately called his little heathens. And we have a record of many of the conversations that Luther had with his little heathens around the family table. And the, the book that you can actually buy still today is called Luther's Table Talk. Luther regularly would talk with his wife and children and whichever guest or student happened to be over that night. And they included plenty of singing and joking and scripture reading and discussion, catechism review and prayer. 
You could say that Luther's family table was responsible for the rich Protestant tradition that we now call family worship. And both Martin and Katie longed deeply for the normalcy of their table talk when Martin would go on his trips. But when your table or your couch or your car rides are devoid of scriptural talk, how quickly the places of great comfort become a snare. As you spend hours and hours with the TV on, sin oozes into the home. As you constantly eat on the go, couples become ships passing in the night, and foreign loves loom large. So men, especially take some leadership in your home. Double down and keep the places of intimacy and comfort places of spiritual growth. And as we do, let's not turn this into some dry intellectual exercise, but consistently pray for the Holy Spirit to shine brightly in our homes. So before we read the Bible, before we talk about God, ask for God's wisdom, his protection, and his growth. Stay dependent on him, my friends. And don't forget to express it as you pray for God's illumination. Pray that God would shine brightly in your home today and keep your comforts from becoming snares. Well, the last reason you should pray for God's illumination, number four, God keeps the way of the wicked hard. Proverbs 11.5 says, The wicked are brought down by their own wickedness. Proverbs 13.15, Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. Proverbs 4.19, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And then Romans 11, verse 10, Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. See, a bent back only happens under an immense burden. The burden of bearing your own sin, of rejecting Christ, will only make the paths of life more difficult. And yet so many are content to live in sin. So many are content to stumble in the darkness, keeping their eyes glued to the two inches in front of them. When the Lord calls us, to shine brightly like a city set on a hill, fully aware of our surroundings and our future goals, keeping our eyes fixed, not just on the next step, but on the next mile. So Christians of all people should have clarity on where we need to go next. We aim our lives so that we can hear as we come before our maker, well done, good and faithful servant. So let's, Let's ask God for light as we use his word to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. If the way of the wicked is hard, why are we so content to walk on it? Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As we close, we need to consider a dark story from Luther's life. A friend of Martin Luther's, a certain Dr. Krauss, committed suicide because he thought he denied Christ and became convinced that Jesus was accusing him at the Father's right hand. Luther countered that such despair was a lie of the devil. The notion that Christ is an accuser of believers is an alien Christ about which Scripture knows nothing at all about. Jesus is the reconciler, the, the mediator, the, the comforter, the savior seated on the throne of grace. He alone took our sin while he hung on the cross so we could be declared right before God. Luther simply said, his righteousness is yours, your sin is his. The believer has faith that transfers sin, death, the curse, and all the evils that oppress us from ourselves to Christ. And on the other hand, it transfers righteousness, life, and blessing from Christ to us. As Galatians 3.13 says, Christ became a curse for us. 
And so Luther comments, God sent his son into the world, heaped all the sins of all men upon him, and said to him, be Peter the denier, Paul the persecutor, blasphemer and assaulter, David the adulterer, the sinner who ate the apple in paradise, the thief on the cross. In short, be the person for all men, be sin in their place. See, when you pray for illumination, your goal isn't an easier life, isn't to think better always of yourself, isn't simply to know a few fun facts about Jesus and the world. The goal of illumination is to learn to cherish Christ above all, to so warm your hearts with a zeal for Jesus that every day your goal is to glorify Christ, your reconciler, your mediator that gets you to God, your comforter, your savior, and your source of God's grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we were able to spend studying your word. Lord, we certainly see the tragic effects of living in a sin-cursed world as you judge many and callous the hearts of many. You give people a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear. Lord, these things break our hearts. And so we stand and we ask that you would help open our eyes to be aware of our own sins, of our own ways that we are tempted to harden our hearts or to turn our table into a snare. Lord, I pray that you would also open the eyes of the blind that we have to interact with, that you would help those who don't know you as their Lord and Savior to come to know you as Jesus, their only hope, their only God. Lord, I pray that you would do these things because you alone are able to give grace. Lord, we certainly don't know who has been chosen by you and who you've hardened, so we pray fervently for everyone that we know that you would do a mighty work in their lives and to save them. Help us to be faithful and consistent to help people know who you are and how you want us to live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.